Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Kim Abrahams. We're at Lingua Franca. It's uh, August 20th, 2020. Uh, Thank you so much, Kim, for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. First question for you, and our most important question kind of for our purposes, is why wine? Uh, Well, I guess sometimes I ask myself the same question. (laughs) No, um, I think for me, I definitely did not grow up in a wine world. I kind of grew up in the complete opposite. Um, for me, it was I was raised in a Southern Baptist home, and so there's two very distinct kind of unwritten rules, no drinking and no dancing. Um, so for me, there definitely wasn't a aha moment as a child. Um, into college, I started working in restaurants, and I remember the first time I actually opened a bottle of wine at a table. Um, I couldn't actually get the cork out. <laughs> I was mortified and I ran back to the kitchen almost in tears and asked the chef like can you please please help me with this and I went back to the table and poured the wine and was so embarrassed and the people were so incredibly kind Um, the next uh, meeting we had with our staff I was forced to stand in front of about 30 other servers and open a bottle of wine until I could do it Um, so needless to say I have um, pretty good at that I feel like now I could do it in my sleep Um, But that was kind of my first terrifying moment in the wine world. Um, There were many more to come, but um, in college, I worked in restaurants and I saw people drinking wine, but it wasn't anything that I was super fascinated by. Um, There was a moment though in college where my boyfriend at the time, his family drank really nice wine and they opened up a bottle of wine for me after finishing kind of a successful charity event that we were operating in college and it was his way of saying congratulations and that moment really was like, wow, this, this means something for him to pull this bottle out that was special for him and share it with me. And so from then on out, I kind of started paying a little more attention to why people were drinking wine and um, how they were drinking it, what they were purchasing. Um, I was in college, so I was very poor and couldn't really afford much other than what was sold at the gas station. Um, But after college, I went, so I studied and I stayed in Louisiana. That's where I'm born and raised. Um, And what I ended up doing was, I went to a college about an hour away from my hometown and in Louisiana, they offer free tuition, so nobody leaves. Um, I started out in nursing and then I spent one semester in clinicals and I cried every day because I couldn't actually help the people I was supposed to be helping. Um, I switched over to business and was like, oh, I can, my mom always used to say you could sell ice to the Eskimos. And so um, I, I started going down this pathway of a business degree, not really knowing where it was going to take me. Um, and then one day I had graduated college, still didn't have a job, was uncertain of my future. Um, I was working a catering event and ended up talking to the guy next to me um, who happened to work for our local distributor. And he kind of started asking me about myself and said, you know, we actually have an entry level sales position available. Um, you'd be selling wine and beer and spirits. And I was like, oh, you know, I've been working in the restaurant. That sounds much better than selling trash cans, um, which is actually what my first job offer was out of college, was to work for waste management. 
and they were gonna pay me a lot of money, move me to Tennessee, and when they offered me the job, I started crying on the phone <laughs> because I knew that I couldn't sell something that I didn't believe in, and you need to believe in trash, but not that kind of way. So when he started talking about the option of selling wine and beer, I was like, I know nothing. And he was like, look, this is a brand building division. We can teach you everything you need to know. You just need to know customer relationship management and be able to talk to people. And um, I went in, interviewed for the job and was able to be hired on. And so I worked for Glaciers, um, which is a pretty large distribution company based in Texas and operates a lot in the um, southern states. And so. I spent about a year working for them, actually two years, um, and I sold Yellowtail, Behringer, um, all of these kind of low-end entry-level wines. And so I was, I think my largest sale, I sold 250 cases of Magnums of Yellowtail to a big box superstore. Um, and it was fascinating. And I would do tastings in the stores for people and pour these wines. and. You know, I also, my knowledge was very low, but I was like, wow, like people really want to know about wine. And so myself, I started studying and, and with my training at Glaciers, they, you know, they teach you about wine. You need to be able to sell it, but not to the extent that I was, um, I wasn't necessarily like, okay, you've taught me everything I need to know. It just kind of opened this door. And I was like, okay, I need to know more. Um, growing up in Louisiana and wanting to leave ever since I was a kid, I was like, I think this is my chance. Like, I think that I want to take this to the next level. And not growing up around wine, not really knowing people who worked in wine, I thought to myself, like, where would I go? And I was like, Napa. Like, that's, people say wine, you say Napa. And I was like, okay. And so I remember I went home and I told my mom, I said, I am quitting my job and I'm moving to Napa, California, and I'm gonna go work in a winery. And they just kind of looked at me like, uh, no, you're not. And I was like, well, you don't, I'm on my own. You know, you don't take care, like, it's not like you're paying for my way. Um, and I literally did. I quit my job and two weeks later, I packed up my car and I drove across the country. Um, I had no job. I found a place to live off of Craigslist and said, I'm gonna show up at your door and hand you, you know, $700 and hopefully this is where I'm gonna live. I didn't quite tell my parents the full story though. <laughs> That's definitely the truth. Um, and I got to Napa and I was just like a kid in a candy store, but I had no job. So I remember going to the library and just trying to do everything I could to apply to every job out there. Um, Winejobs.com became my best friend. I checked that about three times a day. And I was always, it was harvest season, but I didn't know anything about winemaking. I didn't know that being an intern was a thing. Mm -hmm. So I was only applying for tasting room jobs. Um, I ended up landing at Robert Sinsky and just fell in love. And everything there just said, okay, this wine, this is where you're going. This is where you need to be. And from then on, it was just, just kept rolling. <laughs> I'm curious about, before we get on with the, with the journey that you talked about, kind of how your education got to a certain point with the distributor, distributor but you wanted to learn more. So mm -hmm. how did you go about sort of learning more as you were work, working your way towards Napa? What did you do to kind of learn more about wine? Yeah, I think for me it was, I read a lot, um, constantly, magazines, books. Um, my mom was a librarian, so um, I, 
have always spent a lot of time in the library, just pulling books, reading through. Um, and there wasn't necessarily a particular book that I saw. Um, I started looking into the um, sommelier program, the WSET program, and so I just kind of got all of their entry-level information, and I would take anything I wanted, um, anything that looked like it could say wine in it. I was like, okay, I'm gonna read this, I'm gonna read this, and I just kept going. Um, also with Glaciers, we, in the brand building division, we had a lot of um, suppliers that would come and introduce new products. And in that, sometimes they would bring um, a salesperson from the winery, and those people would do ride-alongs with me, and I would ask them eight million questions. They're like, can you ask about our wine instead of just about everything how I got here? Um, so yeah, I think it was just pulling information, reading things, talking to people, but I still didn't really know many people that worked in wine. Um, so I was like, I gotta immerse myself, I gotta be there. And so that's kind of why I picked up and moved out to California. You talk about kind of falling in love. Would do, can you can you describe what it was about it that that kind of drew you in? What was so captivating for you? Yeah, I think you know I mentioned that moment of someone pouring a special bottle of wine for me, and that definitely cemented in my mind that wine was something that was meant to be shared, and also around the dinner table. Um, food in the South is so important to our culture, and having this kind of wine, I think what wine did is when it went on the table, it extended the dinner. Mm -hmm. The dinner went from being just about the food and spending, you know, an hour eating dinner to spending three hours because you were drinking wine and you were enjoying. And I think when I got to Robert Sinsky, um, they are biodynamically farmed. They have, um, the wife is a chef and we had a kitchen and house. And so it wasn't just about the wine. It was about the food and the farming. And I was like, this is amazing. Like you can literally grow your food in California and then make the wine here and then sit down at a table and enjoy both of these things. I'm going to be at this table for five hours because I just never want it to end. And I, I don't think I really like fell in love with wine until I started sharing it with people. And that was the moment that I was like, okay, I'm a people person. I love food and I love just being around people and I think that having that opportunity to start sharing it with other people and seeing their faces just light up, that was kind of those moments when I started to really fall in love with it. Until then I was just curious and I was like, what is this? Like, what am I gonna learn? And am I really gonna do this? Like, what am I gonna do with my life? I don't know, but I just needed to keep moving forward. And the love came at the table. So tell me about your, your first role in the industry then at, at Robertsinski. What were you doing and, and, and how did it kind of progress? Yeah, so um, I started there because there was a woman who had actually, she was from Louisiana. So when my resume came through, she's like, oh, girl from Louisiana wants a job? Okay. And I remember showing up and I was in dress clothes and I showed up and they're all in like jeans and casual clothes. And I was like, okay, I am so out of my element here. Um, but they ended up hiring me on. Um, I definitely wore jeans to my first day of work, which I never thought I would do, and now I can't get out of them. But um, I was in the tasting room, so I started out just kind of behind the bar. We had a walk-in tasting room that anyone could come into, and then I, as I kind of started to get to know the business a little bit more, um, we, I started hosting the private tastings, and so we had a garden on site with the chef, and the winery was on site, and so it was very much a, a small team, and everyone 
connected and really just, it was one cohesive unit. And so as I got to know more about the business and did really well behind the bar, um, they started putting me on the farm to table tours. And, and that was my chance. It was eight people maximum. We'd sit at a table, the chef would bring out this beautiful board of food. And there were no pairings because it was you, you get to choose your path. You don't, I'm not gonna tell you what you need to do. Um, you get to choose what you want. And so I just started hosting these tastings. I was doing two to three a day um, for a couple years and just really at that point became immersed in the way they were making wine and then um, kind of what was, what their connection was um, with the wine and the food. And so I did that for quite a few years. And then um, I ended up meeting my husband at Robertsinski. He was an intern, total no-no. Oh my gosh, I thought I would never be the person to date someone in the workplace. And I tried to keep it, cre I tried to keep it secret. And then he was no longer an intern and then we made it public and everyone was like, we knew about this, like, come on now. Um, but he was working as a winemaker and so he was doing the traveling winemaking thing. And so his next step was to go to Tasmania, Australia. And I followed him. I was like, I'm coming with you. I was like, as a salesperson, not many salespeople know about winemaking and vineyards. Um, so if I can get that chance and get that experience, then I can come back and be the best salesperson ever because I'm gonna have that experience. Um, so that was kind of our next path was to move overseas. Um, once again, no job, kind of my forte, it feels like. <laughs> Um, but yeah, we ended up there and that was just a whole nother adventure um, to come and yeah, just kind of started moving on from there. So tell, tell me about that adventure, tell me about Tasmania and what it was like being there and, and, and finding your way through. Yeah, I mean, like I said, no job when I got down there. Um, I was like, I'll find something. Um, I was able to live in an intern house with him um, and he was working at another winery and we were um, in Lowhead, Tasmania. Um, the beach was literally across the street from our home, uh, but the town of Lowhead, I think maybe the sign said 36 people. <laughs> there was a small town um, about 20 minutes away with a gas station and a grocery store and that kind of thing. So um, very, uh, very country, I guess is the way to explain it. Not a lot about. So I started, as soon as I got there, I had all my resumes, went to the library, printed them out, um, and ended up just going around to every single winery and dropping off my resume. This was after I had emailed every single winery in the region about two or three times. I was like, okay, you cannot get rid of me. Someone is going to hire me. And I did that, and I didn't hear back from anyone except a contract company who needed pickers. So I said, great, I know how to work. I grew up on a plant nursery in Southwest Louisiana, so I hated plants, um, but I was like, they're part of wine, I'll, I'll get used to it. And I went out and picked. Um, you show up in long sleeves, you just are full of sweat, and you just pick. Um, it's a very different environment than it is um, in America because in Tasmania it's too cold a lot of the times for the migrant workers to move south so it's all backpackers. Mm -hmm. So it's people from France and Italy and Germany and so I just started hearing how all of these people were traveling around the world just picking grapes and trying to learn about wine and I was like this is so cool. Um, and so I ended up doing that for about six weeks, which was the hardest work I've ever done in my life. Um, but 
it was amazing. And then one of the wineries we ended up going tasting at and on the weekend and the owner happened to be behind the counter and he was talking to us about what we we're doing and he had been in um he had done a harvest in oregon actually and was like oh i was in oregon i know you were in california but oregon's amazing and he kind of said what are you doing i said oh i'm picking fruit and he's like that's terrible do you want to come work for me and i was like uh yeah and i was like i dropped off a resume like two weeks ago and no one ever called me back and I emailed you and he's like digging through papers and he's like, oh, is this you? And I was like, oh my God, yes, it is. So I showed up, they were bottling right before harvest and I showed up and put crown caps on bottles for days. And then afterwards he walked up to me and he said, hey, um, I see your work ethic. Do you want to run my vineyard crew? And I was like, I don't know what that means, but yes. And so I spent my days that year in the harvest. So this was tw 2013. Um, so this would have been in February of 2013. And I spent my days just making sure people were in the right rows um, and making sure that the fruit was getting to the winery, which was on site. It was a really small property. They had bird netting. So I spent a lot of my time being tangled in bird netting, trying to get samples, chasing chickens out of the bird netting or finding them caught in the bird netting. Um, and they knew that I wanted to learn, but they didn't really need me in the winery. So I would go down at night and wash all the bins that we harvested fruit into. And then I would say, hey, do y'all need any more help? And he would go, we need that tank cleaned over there, or that dug out, and I would just jump in. And I was just like a kid in a candy store, so excited. And it, I ended up kind of participating a little bit more I'd go down and take bricks and temps and I'm like I don't even know what a brick means like can you teach me and there it was Bome so I'm like ah, what is happening um, and I just kind of started learning more and more um, my husband's contract was extended into the winter and so they kind of said well if you want to stay on for pruning like you can and I did and spent my days in the winter which is so cold in Tasmania pruning and on days when it was raining I would go down into the winery and they would put up a marker board and like teach me about enology and they had to teach me what that meant and they would just teach me everything and I was like okay I want to go work a harvest um, when we were there there's this amazing shop called the Pino shop um, in Launceston Tasmania and we walked in and Matt and I were kind of talking about where we wanted to go next in life and we didn't want to go back to California because it was so expensive and we knew we couldn't make a life, especially as like traveling workers. <laughs> um, and we drank a bottle of Christum Pinot Noir and we were like, this is amazing. Like we should go to Oregon. Like, let's go check it out. And then my boss having worked in Oregon, he was like, yeah, y'all should go to Oregon. So we're like, okay. And so, and then at that point we started applying for jobs. Wine Jobs once again emailed every single person that was offering an internship because I didn't really have a full internship under my belt. And so I kind of, you know, worked around my resume a little to make it very appealing. And once again, um, I applied at Domain Serene and they were the only winery to email me back. And it was because the guy who was hiring was from Virginia and he saw a girl from Louisiana wanting a job and he's like, okay, like that, that doesn't come around every day. So they hired me. And at that point I was still kind of pruning and my bosses in Tasmania were like, crap, like we kind of gave you a reference and said you worked harvest here and you didn't. 
So that's kind of where all the education and this is a pump and this is a hose and this is a clamp and clean your buckets. And you know, they were just, everything they could teach me, they just threw at me. Um, which was, it's one of those things that I think back to and I'm like, I couldn't pay someone to do that now. Um, and then, yeah, and then we traveled around a bit in Thailand and all that kind of stuff. The, the whole post-harvest travel experiences, which I miss dearly, but <laughs> you got to grow up at some point. <laughs> amazing. That's yeah. amazing. So tell me about your first impressions of, of Oregon's wine industry and, and, and your work at Domain Serene. Yeah, so I got to Oregon and I remember we got back to California, packed up my car, drove up to Oregon. I did have a place to live, which was a move. Um, and we were living in the intern house. So Domaine Serene houses all of their interns on site. And I remember driving up from California and I'm driving up um, the road up to Domaine Serene and I'm just like, whoa. This is crazy. There are vineyards everywhere. These wineries are just beautiful. And I remember pulling into the driveway and just looking out at the Domain Serene property and like, oh my God, I'm gonna live here? You know, I was just like, I, I can't even contain myself. And pulling up to the house and meeting all the interns for the first time was just, it's such an exciting moment. You don't, I didn't comprehend how close those people would be in my life. Um, and then now you realize that people you worked harvest with, like they're a part of your life because you see each other at your worst and at your best. And there's no judgments because you're just a bunch of people wanting the same thing. And so I started at Serene as an intern. I was what they called the green intern, um, which means that I didn't have a ton of experience. And, and green interns are usually, I mean, they go one of two ways. They either are some of the best interns around or they should stay green and maybe find a new job. Um, and luckily I got there and I actually went through quite a bit of a shock in the beginning. Um, on the first day of work, I ended up getting a call from my family that my mom, she'd been sick for a while. And I got a call from my aunt that told me I needed to come home. So day one, I approached my boss and this is the middle of work and I said, look, something's happened. I think I need to go home, but I'm not sure yet. I got a call the next morning, my second day of work, and she's like, okay, you need to come. I went in and it's harvest, you know, they're expecting you to be there. And I was like, I'm really sorry, but I need to leave. And I left and my mom passed away and we took care of everything. And they said, look, you do what you have to, like, we will make it work, Like, you need to take care of you. And I was like, okay. And I got home and went through all the things. And then I was like, I'm going back. Like, what else am I gonna do? I need a distraction because that's how I handle things in life. <laughs> and I went back. And I remember I got back, I called them and said, I'm coming. And I think they were a little like, are you sure you wanna come back? And I was like, no, I need this, I need this. I went back and I remember my first day, they were like, go up to the sorting table because everyone else had already been given their jobs. So I spent a lot of time on the sorting table that year. And I remember sitting there and Eric Kramer, the winemaker at the time, looked at me, he was across the table and he looked at me and he goes, I'm glad you're back. And that moment was like, okay, this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. And I went on, that harvest was so challenging. You kind of find your buddy um, during harvest and they kind of become your person. For me, it was this um, 
Kiwi guy from New Zealand named Willie, and he was very experienced and just wanted the travel experience. So I kind of buddied up with him, and he, if I was given a task that I didn't really know what to do, I'd go to him and say, Willie, can you help me do this? And he'd go, yeah, Kim, come on, let's do it. And you know, I always say I'm a slow learner, but once I get it, I am, I get it. And I ask a lot of questions. And did I make mistakes that year? Absolutely. Um, some that were more comical and should not be told, but <laughs> I got through. Um, there were, I think, seven interns that year. So we had a pretty good group of people. Um, and it was the hardest work that I'd done since, even then thinking back, I think picking in Tasmania was still the hardest work I've ever done. Uh, but it was so much fun. You know, they, Domain Serene has created such an amazing entity for people to learn. Um, you are just exposed to so many things. And everyone that works there is willing to teach and ask questions and, you know, have this conversation. Um, and because I'd been in the vineyard, they really let me go out and do a lot of the sampling and that kind of thing. So you get a lot of one-on-one -on -one time with winemakers and kind of management when you go out in the vineyards with people. So I tried to take every opportunity I could. And then the one suggestion my boss gave me from Tasmania was work in the lab. Because when you're in the lab, you're usually in the ears of the winemaker um, and you, you're able to listen. He's like, don't open your mouth. Like, don't ask a lot of questions when they're in these very intense conversations, but like, just listen. He's like, you'll pick up more information than you'd ever imagine. And so that's what I did. I kind of said, hey. So it was like, I was in full on bricks and temps every morning. Um, and then I would help with cap management and then doing a lot of sampling for vineyards and processing those samples. And that's what I did. I was just taking as much information as possible. Um, after harvest, the plan was my friend Willie had gotten me a job at the winery he worked at New Zealand. So I was supposed to be going to New Zealand and then I realized that Domain Serene actually needed a cellar hand. And because of everything that had happened with my mom, I just, I, I kind of came to this conclusion that I needed stability. I needed to start my life because before she passed, that was something that she was concerned about, was like my just lati dying around the world. Um, so I was like, you know what, maybe it's time. And I pretty much begged Eric for a job. I was like, look, I know you need someone. I know that I'm the least experienced out of all of these people, but like, I want this, I want this. And I had the job lined up in New Zealand and I think it was like the day before my last day of work and I was driving back to Louisiana and he's like, hey, you want that job? And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, you know, like we need a seller hand. Like, do you want the job? And I was like, yes, like please. And so I showed, I went back home, showed up back in January and I spent the next three and a half years as a seller hand at Domain Serene and, you know, progressed through different things there as far as like starting just topping and helping with bottling and then I was helping with the racking. And I think the greatest part about that was the learning experience was that we made everything from 50 case blends to 10,000 case blends. And the facility there is pretty amazing. And when you learn how to make clean wine, I think that is, that is a basis of winemaking that every single person needs. Um, it teaches you so much about what you do. Um, the artistic part of winemaking is kind of easy because that's self-interpretation. But the, the technical part of it, the actual physical aspect of touching things and moving things and cleaning things, 
I mean, as winemakers, I always say 75% of our jobs is just being a janitor when you're a cellar hand. Like, that's what you do. You clean. And I, t I learned the importance of that, um, the importance of systems, because in an operation like that, you have to have systems. Um, and yeah, it was, it was fascinating. And you know, you work with a lot of people, you have a big team, they were going through growth, expansion, kind of was there through the shift of, they started building the new clubhouse, they were expanding the winery, we started the sparkling wine program when I was there. So they actually worked with a consultant from Champagne, um, which that was fascinating for me to get into his mind. Um, while I was there, they also purchased Chateau de la Cray in Burgundy. And so it was like kind of this world just started expanding while I was there. And I was just a cellar hand, you know, just working, putting my head down, getting it done. But I tried to think more than just a cellar hand. And um, yeah, and I guess when I moved here, I started, I wanted to be connected to the community. Growing up in the South, it's your community is everything. And when I got here, I didn't know anyone. And I just kind of started trying to reach out to people that I had casually met and ended up in a tasting group um, with a pretty amazing group of people um, who have, some are still here, some aren't. Um, in that tasting group though, I met Thomas, who is the winemaker at Lingua Franca now. And that, we had a friendship for a really long time. And then after that, we ended up just maintaining friendship. His wife's from Arkansas, so he's like, oh, two Southern girls, y'all are gonna love each other. And sure enough, we do, <laughs> very much so. And I think at that point, it just kind of, everything just started moving and life became normal in Oregon. And I just was introduced to all of these amazing people who had all these amazing pathways to get where they wanted to be. And they were willing to share and I think for me, coming from Napa, winemakers are rock stars down there. They're like famous people. You don't see them. When you do see them, they're like being weird in the corner, don't want to talk to anyone. Anytime you go to a winery, they don't want to speak to people. And this is a very generalized comment, but it was hard because I was like, but you are who I want to become, but you won't talk to me, so how am I supposed to know that? And then when I got to Oregon, everyone's like, you know, you show up to go tasting, and as interns at Serene, our first year we went to Bergstrom, and Josh Bergstrom took care of us. And I remember talking to him, asking him questions, and he was treating me just like any other person. And I was like, this is amazing. Like, I have the opportunity to interact with these kinds of people, like, wow. You know, it was, it was eye-opening, and it was very much like, this is, this is where I belong. And so my time at Serene was amazing, and then, eventually moved over to Lingua Franca and things have just kind of kept rolling. <laughs> Tell me about that transition and, and what you were, what excited you about Lingua Franca and kind of what your, again, initial impressions were. I know you were right here at the start of Lingua Franca. So mm -hmm. tell me about kind of coming in at that time and, and what your kind of initial impressions were. Yeah, I mean, I think when Tomah first started the project with Larry, um, he knew that he was gonna need someone and he kind of had been talking to me. He knew my background with distribution, tasting room, vineyards, winery. I was also studying. That's something that I've always told myself is that I'm always gonna continue learning. So I was taking classes at Chemeketa. I was taking a viticulture course through Washington State University. And he knew that he needed someone that kind of knew a little bit about everything. And so he kind of started approaching me um, about a year before I took the job, just kind of saying, hey, this is an opportunity, but nothing's happening now. 
Um, you know, I, I want you to just be happy in your job and if something comes up, it will. And so we kind of just casually started talking about things and then he came to me and said, okay, like we need someone and I want you to apply for the job. Uh, the thing is, is we were friends and Larry and David, the owners knew that and they were hesitant as they should have been. So the job was posted, um, other people applied for the job. I think I went through three or four interviews with them before they actually said, yes, she can work here uh, because they had hesitation. And I think that when I started, usually for me, I need to build trust with someone when I work with them and that takes time. With Toma, because we were friends, we had the trust. Our partners, my husband and his wife, were terrified that it was going to ruin our friendship. And I think more than anything, it's made it stronger. And they see that, we see that. But I came in the first week that, I came in a week after Toma, David, Dominique, and Larry had all gotten back from the Cayman Islands where they had launched the wines for Lingua Franca. It was the first time they poured them. Um, so this was in um, February of 2017. Um, they had made the 15 vintage, the 16 vintage was here when I got here. And I walked in and um, this wonderful human named Alex, who actually lived with me at the time, we were renting a room upstairs. He was the cellar master here. So he was helping Toma out. I kind of came in as the assistant winemaker to help implement systems. And also just, we had no sales program. Um, we had no phone. I remember getting here and I'm like, okay, y'all, like, where's the phone? And they're like, we don't have a phone. <laughs> okay, guys, we're going to get a telephone. When you call Lingua Franca, it would either go directly to Tomas' cell phone or Larry Stone's cell phone, which is just amazing on so many levels. Um, and we started, I started putting together tastings. So if people emailed, I would come in, Toma and I would both host the tastings. Alex would help out as well. Um, we were packing all the shipments that were going out to all the distributors because we had just launched the wines. So people wanted the wines. They wanted to taste the wines. Um, so we were sending out samples and I remember type, I was doing all the shipping and then I was also trying to implement systems for the winery and it was just this constant back and forth and it was amazing. It was just, it was an experience that I feel like I would love to do again and I just don't know if that will ever happen. Um, and then working, coming in and working for Larry Stone and Dominique Lafon was a little like, it was a little scary. Um, I was like, I am just this, I was just this little cellar hand at Domaine Serene and now I'm sitting here at a table with two of some of the most influential people in the wine business. And, and I think it was my third week here, Dominique was in town and we were sitting down to do blending for the wines. And I remember just being terrified. And I, you know, you can't show your, terrified you just walk in confidence tasting and we sat down and tasted the wines and I was like oh these people are just so normal you know like normal relative <laughs> as we all are normal relative um, but they were just so welcoming and they treated me with the utmost respect and for me it was just like wow this is I belong here like I earned my spot here and they want to know my opinion and I witnessed some pretty interesting things happening just with the way we blended the wines and it was a completely different approach to how I had been doing things at Domaine Serene. And the thing is, is at Domaine Serene, I hadn't necessarily been doing that part of the job. And here at Lingua Franca, if you're a cellar hand, if you're a cellar master, 
if you're the assistant winemaker, the winemaker, we all do it together. And so that was a really special thing for me to value every single person's opinion. And it all, we all come from these different backgrounds. And so it was amazing. I remember Larry and Dominique had got into a bit of a tiff over a particular wine that was in front of us. And I kind of stayed quiet. We got in the car to go up to the vineyard. Dom turned around, he said, Kim, what do you think? And I was like, oh God, I don't know what side to pick, but I'm just gonna give you my honest opinion. And they respect that. And it's been, it's been amazing. This journey has been, oh man, it feels like yesterday I walked through the door. Um, but we've come a long way and now we have a huge team and have built a brand. And I'm really glad that I got to kind of be there from the beginning of the launch of the wines. Um, and then, yeah, the vineyards and everything are just, everything is coming together. Um, and it feels really, really, really good to know that we've been a part of that. Um, I think we're all incredibly proud of the wines we make. And I think that we're proud because we're given the freedom to make the kind of wines that we feel need to be made. And we're given the freedom to experiment. Um, that's something that Thomas has always kind of pushed is that we're constantly pushing the boundaries. We're constantly, if we have a question, we figure out why we have that question and then we try to answer it. And you answer that through experimentation. Um, and growing our team over the years has been really fun. Um, having Joe and Chase um, and now Tama and Brandon, our vineyard manager, like we're all really close and it's, we're family and it feels that way. And it's a good feeling to have um, being in this business. So, yeah. So as the team has grown, I assume that means your role has also shifted a little bit mm -hmm. here. So tell me about kind of what your role looks like now and I'm also curious along with that, um, you talk about sort of the, the confidence building as you're, as you're welcoming into this team. Tell me at what point you feel the confident, you felt the confidence to assert your opinion or to try something in wine that was more personal or, or maybe, maybe, maybe less textbook than, than, you were, than you were used to. I'm sort of curious what point in the process that happened for you. Yeah, I mean, I think confidence is something in the wine industry that, <laughs> I, someone once told me something and it feels a bit weird to say it, but fake it till you make it. And I can't say how true that is in the wine industry. <laughs> and the truth of the matter is, is that the beauty of what we do is that no matter if you've been making wine for 50 years or five years, you don't know everything. And everything is changing. The weather's changing which in turn means the fruit and our wines are changing. So I think that some of the best winemakers are people who are open-minded and look for, and don't just look as interns as people who are here to do the work. We look at them as people who are going to push our brains in a different direction. They're going to remind us. And I honestly think that first year working with a group of interns and kind of being their boss in a sense, um, and saying like, look, we have this very open relationship where I want you to question me, I wanna question you, and we're gonna have a conversation. And I think that when you have people come in and you're responsible for them, you have no other option but to be confident. But you can be confident without being an ass. And I think that's a big difference. And I think that having that open conversation was really important. And I think for me, because I didn't study viticulture or winemaking, I always felt that I wasn't necessarily gonna be enough. 
And so I started taking classes. And I started at Chemeketa taking viticulture classes and I realized that I needed something a little more. So I started the program at WSU, finished their viticulture program. Actually, while I was here at Lingua Franca, they were very supportive. And then I take a sensory class. I'm always, study, I try to study like geology and just all the things that make up wine. I just tried to keep learning. And I think it was kind of when I sat at that table for the first time with Larry and Dominique and Tomat and they looked at me and asked my opinion, I was like, okay, they care and they want to know. They're not just doing this to make me feel better. And I think that at that point I was like, okay, like I can do this. I have experience. I have a lot to bring to this table and they want to hear it. And so it's been fun over the years. You know, when I started here, it was Tomat, myself and Alex. And so Alex was doing a lot of the cellar work and here at Lingua Franca, we also have a custom crush operation. So um, we get to see what other people are doing and help them kind of take their ideas of winemaking and make them into a reality. And so um, I was kind of focused on that for a little while, really just trying to get things organized in that respect and working with Toma very closely. And because of the environment that was created here we all kind of collectively did things together and over the years it just every year you just grow and you grow and you push yourself and you push each other and i think that's what's been so important is that toma always comes to me and asks my opinion and i always go to him and ask his opinion it's just this mutual respect we have and it's been really great as far as seeing ourselves grow um you know over the years it's gone from helping get all the winemaking done and now that we have joe and chase i'm shifting more to a lot of logistics and day-to-day -day operations and um, dealing with clients and the wonderful world of winemaking of sitting behind a computer which is like it hurts sometimes um, come harvest time we are on the floor we're cleaning bins we're unloading fruit um, forklifting I would like to think is one of my major skills in life and I love to get on the forklift and unload a truck of fruit. Um, I have over the last couple of years my focus has really been on Chardonnay um, and really just kind of zoning in on that and really trying to dial in our program and then shifting over to Pinot Noir once we kind of get everything in barrel and happily fermenting fingers crossed. Um, and yeah I think you know I've I love the vineyard and I think I mentioned earlier that I grew up on a um, plant nursery and I hated plants. Like I was like, these things are terrible, they're pointless, what do I want to do with them? Now you come to my house and you're like, girlfriend, you got too many plants. <laughs> but it took me a while to realize that grapevines, they give you something. And I, I like plants with a purpose um, and so I've always been interested in the vineyard. And, you know, everyone always says, it's kind of the cliche, great wine's made in the vineyard. It is, like it, it is. You cannot make great wine with crappy grapes. It's just not possible. You can do everything you want to it. You can throw every product at it, but that's not what we want to do. And so I've been really trying to take my time and get up into the vineyard and walking the vines and just not during August, throughout the year. Um, our team has taken over an acre in the vineyard and we do all the pruning. We try to do most of the handwork throughout the year. Things get busy, so we don't always get to finish, but we get out there. And our crews up there are so amazing. And to see these people up there caring so much for what we're doing, um, it's good to connect with them and say, hey, like, thank you for taking care of this beautiful vineyard for us. Um, and so I think it's just 
constantly pushing yourself and constantly reminding us that it's never going to be the same. And that's kind of fascinating. And that's kind of why I think we do it. Um, and then now we're, we have all of this beautiful land here at Lingua Franca. We have about 60 acres that is not vineyard. Um, and so we're starting to expand kind of the ideas of what we want to do with it. So we've got, um, I've got four beehives that I'm taking care of right now and kind of just thinking about the next step as far as like, do we want to develop a farm and all that. And that's all a little bit up in the air, but what it's doing is it's giving me a direction to grow in that's more connected to the business, um, but also still my winemaking duties and making sure that we're making the best wines we can and working with the best fruit we can. So, tell me about the the, the best wine. I'm curious. What, what? How do you describe Lingua Franca wines? What, what's special about this place? And what are you? What are you trying to achieve in the bottle? Yeah, I think. I mean, for us, as we've shifted. So when I first started, we were. Um, buying a fair amount of fruit because the vineyard was young and just coming online and in 2016 we made our first estate Pinot Noir and I think that was a bit of a shock for everyone. We sat down during the tasting and everyone was just kind of like what? Like this, this is possible from such a young vineyard and I think what we've realized is that when Larry chose this site to plant a vineyard he knew what he was doing. And the vineyard is incredibly giving, so we don't worry about young vines not giving us a lot of fruit. Um, they are giving us plenty of fruit, and they are happy and healthy. And our vineyard is split up into 23 different blocks, and our job in the winery is to make sure that those 23 different blocks, even though they're coming from the same place, they have their own intention and I, I don't use that word lightly for me intention is so important in the kind of wines that we are making we don't just bring everything in and do the same thing to it and hope that it turns out differently the fruit comes in we're really looking at it we're really trying to decide every every 12 hours because that's how often we're tasting um, what we're going to be doing to those wines and that they have a purpose at the end and I think for us, like making sure it's kind of scary to work with one vineyard site because you're like, well, what if it all tastes the same? As a winemaker, that is my biggest fear is for someone to be like, oh, it don't really taste the difference. And you're like, crap. Um, so having that intention from the beginning for all these different blocks to be the best that they can is very important. And then I think something that has been drilled into my head is blind tasting. Um, as a young vineyard, we don't have these preconceived notions as to what blocks belong in what wine. And every time we taste, we taste blind because we want to give everything an opportunity. And that kind of stems a lot from Dominique because in Burgundy, he's never going to put his Montrachet into his Village wines. Like he's not, it's not possible. This is what you do and this is how you do it. And here he's like, you have the opportunity to do whatever you want. And that's, that's a gift. And I think that what it does is it really allows us to take each vintage and each block and really try to figure out what the best, best pathway and the best skew for this wine is. And I think we, you know, we want to make honest wines that show where they come from. Um, I always say that what I want, if I get one thing, one descriptor for wine, I want it to be alive. 
I want it to show me something. I want to taste a bottle of wine and I want it to show me a varietal and a place. And if it, it can do those two things, I am incredibly happy. If it can show me the winemaker, I need to figure out how to do that because that would be amazing. But I don't necessarily think we need to see the winemakers through wines. I think we need to see the place and the varietal and, and also clean wine. Um, no flaws. There are flaws that can help bring the wine to make it alive, but in balance. And so for us, I think we're trying to make balanced wines that are alive and show the place. Um, and that's, I think we're doing it. Um, but every year we're pushed and we're challenged and we never do the same thing. And it makes our jobs not easy. Um, I mean, if we just did two bump overs a day and everything got punched down every 12 hours and we did this and that, like, that's easy. But making decisions on the fly is, I think, what really kind of takes our wines to the place we want them to be. You mentioned earlier, the obviously, Larry and Dominic Lafon, mm -hmm. huge, huge names in the wine industry. Uh, obviously, when they start a brand together, there's going to be a certain amount of expectation and I assume a certain amount of pressure. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about that, how that's manifested for you, if you felt that kind of pressure to make something amazing and if you feel like you're on the path toward where you want to be. Yeah, I think that, I think when I first came in, I thought there was going to be this pressure. And then when I got here and I interacted with them, I realized that with the right support, we can do something great. And I think that that's all they've done is offer us the support in order to do that. Um, I was incredibly fortunate my first year in 2017 that Tomah he was a little worried about me and him working together for Harvest because I had worked at Serene. It's a very structured, very logistical driven environment. And he was like, Kim, I just, you've never been to France to work Harvest. Like, I just, I think you need to go. And I'm like, well, okay, sure. And so he sent me for two weeks. I went in 2017 to Burgundy and I pretty much followed Dominique around like a little puppy um, because I wasn't legally allowed to work. So they're very strict labor laws and so I wasn't allowed to work. So what I would do is I would meet him every morning in uh, Merceau at the winery. Dominique would do all of his debombage, which is his racking. And then we'd get in the car, we'd go out to the vineyards, check on the vineyards. We'd get back in the car, go down to his winery in McCall check on the winery, taste the wines, go to the vineyards, and then back to the winery in Marceau. And that's what we did. And, and he also had a custom crush operation that he makes his own wines, Dominique Lafon. And so I was able to kind of witness the way that they do things in France and kind of see the beauty behind the slow down, it's all gonna be okay. And it's not this just like crank, 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 go, 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 which it is like that sometimes here, but it's just like your intention. Like we are making these wines for, for pleasure and for people to enjoy. And I think through that in that experience with Dominique and working with Larry over the years that I've never really felt a ton of pressure from them uh, because they believe in us and they trust us. And that's, that's something that is amazing. It's not something that comes around that often, I think. And we're young, you know, we're not these crazy winemakers who have these insane resumes. Like they took a chance on Toma and then Toma took a chance on me. And I think that we have kind of 
we push them as much as they push us, and I think that works. Um, so I don't necessarily think that there's this huge amount of pressure. Um, and you know, we always say like, when all the scores come out and publications and things like that, that's great, thank you, but like, it's not gonna change the way we do things. We're never going to make adjustments based on what the market is saying, if that makes sense. Like we're gonna make the wines that we feel are true and honest to ourselves and honest to what Larry has wanted to create here. And that's what we're gonna do. And I think we do a pretty good job of that. And like I said, they trust us and they question us in the best ways possible. I always say Dominique's like an uncle. Like, you know, like gives you advice, but is never really gonna push you to do something you don't wanna do, maybe like your parents would. <laughs> um, and it's, it's amazing to have. And as far as like what I wanna do next, those are the giant questions that I ask myself on a regular basis. And I think for now, I've always told myself that as long as I'm continually learning, I'm happy. And if I get to a point in my career where I'm not learning, then it's time for a change. And right now, I'm still learning. And having the farm and having opportunities to potentially grow that and we're still learning about our vineyard and what it can give to us and I'm happy and you know it's kind of one of those things that I think in the wine industry I always people have kind of said you know how did you get where you got and what are your what's your advice and it's kind of like be patient and don't don't just make a choice because you want out of something make it the right choice one with intention and I think that you should always be looking for a job because you never know really what you want until it's put in front of you. And for me, I had no idea that this is what I wanted to be a part of something like this. And now that I'm here, I'm like, heck yeah, this is great, love it. Um, but I, we still have so much more to grow and so much more to establish. And we've only, you know, we're going into the 2020 vintage and we've first vintage was 2015. So, in respect, we're still a very young winery, and I, I'm excited to see what the future holds. What inspires you most about winemaking? The ability to change. Um, we are in a constant state of change, and I think what happens is that in that change, you have changed from nature, and then you have changed personally. Um, as you evolve through your personal life, you, your, what is important to you changes, um, and that does affect your job. And I think with the change, with kind of that drive, you're always pushing for something. And I think winemaking allows you to be in a constant state of change and therefore be happy but you have to be comfortable with it. Because if you're not, you get house palette and you do the same thing all the time. And for me, that's my fear. I don't wanna be that person. And if I'm not changing and I'm not moving forward, then I'm not being the best winemaker that I can be. Um, so for me, yeah. You've talked a couple times about intentionality and how important that is to you. It's a, it's a word we hear a lot in interviews. It seems like a kind of a, a very important thing to a lot of folks in the wine industry. I'm curious for you personally, as you talk about that, that kind of evolution of yourself, was intentionality something that was always important to you or is that something that's kind of come with being in the industry? I think it's come with being in the industry. 
Um, just looking at my path and how I got to where I am currently, there was no intention <laughs> at all. <laughs> my intention was to get by by the seat of my pants and, and to travel and to push. But the intention was to always be in a constant state of change. And that, I guess, was my intention and I didn't even realize it. Um, but I think that as, you know, when you first get in and you're working harvest and you're bouncing around and you're in these kind of entry level positions, like you're just trying to take as much as you can. And you can't really have a ton of intention with that because you're just in this constant state of being a sponge where you're just like, I will absorb anything and everything I can. And once you, once I came to Lingua Franca and was a part of the winemaking and a part of the decision making, that is where the intention I think really solidified itself. And it's like, okay, the, this is our team on this bottle and in this bottle and what are we trying to accomplish? And I think my intention now will be different than my intention in five years and 10 years and so on. And I hope so. And, but I hope that I always have that in the back of my mind, that I'm always thinking about, I'm not just making a decision for an immediate response, I'm making a decision based on what my intention is for the foreseeable future. Um, unless it comes to the environment, I think our intention should always be long-term. Um, because I think that we won't be able to continue doing what we love without that long-term intention. You talked a bit about the future, which I appreciate. I'm curious, in the near future, as you look ahead to Harvest 2020, obviously we're dealing with pandemic conditions this year and, and everything is up in the air and in flux. So tell me about sort of how COVID-19 has sort of affected your wine life uh, and work here and as it, how it affects what you're looking forward to this harvest. Yeah. So I think when all of this first started, you know, there was so much uncertainty in the world and we went into working from home, except one day a week, we were rotating one person here Mondays, one person here Tuesdays. That lasted for a couple weeks and then I think we all just went, oh God, we can't be at home anymore. <laughs> and we were fortunate that we can come to the facility, we have a large facility, we can spread out and you know wear masks and feel safe and we just started implementing policies and you know really trying to be thoughtful and I think the thing with the pandemic is that it means something different to everyone and having a team you need to make sure that everyone's comfortable and so I think just open communication has always been important to the way we operate but given the state of the world and the pandemic like it's incredibly crucial that I make sure that our team is comfortable with everything and so we have definitely made adjustments. I think one of the saddest things, and this is, I feel like this is kind of petty to say, but we, the community of Oregon is constantly tasting in other people's cellars. It's something that we do every year, and that hasn't happened this year. And it's kind of sad because we can only learn so much from a conversation and we're missing that like, this is what's in my glass. This is what happened to me this year. This is my struggles. This is my challenges. Like we didn't have those round tables and that community part of it, I've missed a lot. Um, it's been a challenging growing season and yields are down and people, we've had moisture and mildew and it usually there's this very open conversation about what's going on in everyone's world and we just don't 
that world is a little pulled apart right now. And so I think that's been really challenging um, as someone who is pretty involved in the community. Um, as far as operations go, just so much planning and can't really plan for the unknown, which I think is the most terrifying part. Um, but we really have just tried to make everyone comfortable. And I think my favorite part about Harvest this year is everyone has their own fanny pack. And I ordered these amazing metallic fanny packs off of Amazon. <laughs> and they showed up and I was kind of worried the boys were gonna be like, Kim, I'm not wearing that. And everyone's like, do you have a pink one? Like, they're so excited. So it's like, we're trying to make things fun, but safe. Um, we, at Lingua Franca, sitting down for lunch around the table and drinking wine is just part of what we do. And I think that's gonna be the hardest part this year is having, everyone's gonna have their own table with a chair, we're still gonna have wine, but it'll just be poured out beforehand and that kind of thing. So I think kind of the collective cohesive unit um, will be a little farther apart this year. And that's kind of really sad to think about. I always say, it feels like all the fun parts of Harvest are going away, but we get to make wine and we get to still do what we wanna do and we get to do it safely because we've created an environment in order to do that. And we'll see how it goes. Um, interns show up in a couple weeks, so it's happening whether we want it to or not. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned the, the, the sort of the, the ongoing conversation slash tasting through, it's not the first time we've heard that this summer. And, and it's funny because everyone always feels guilty for saying it, but it is, like you say, such a big part of how you learn and how you grow together yeah. so, and, and how you stay connected. So mm -hmm. it absolutely makes sense. Yeah. All right. Um, what do you, what are the biggest, obviously you haven't been in Oregon wine for too long, but mm -hmm. what are the biggest changes you've seen in the industry since you've been a part of it? And, and what does it look like now compared to when you started? Yeah, I mean, when I started, it felt like there were, we quite, we hadn't quite seen the influx of people from out of state coming in. Um, so that I think has probably been the biggest change is starting to see wineries sell, um, kind of seeing the first generation starting to kind of say, okay, I've done this, it's time for me to, to pass the torch. Um, so that's probably been the biggest change. And I think when it first started happening, as someone that was young in the industry, I was like, I came here because of all these like small, beautiful people who had these passion projects. And as I kind of have grown in the industry and grown in my career, I realized that it's change, it's part of it. And we need people to promote Oregon wine to the world. And that's how we're all gonna succeed. And just because we have larger companies coming into Oregon doesn't make these smaller companies any less viable. It only brings them up. And I think that's been the biggest change. And I think it's also brought positive things. Um, it's brought competition between employees as far as like, there's more, I think you, I think your skills are important and your networking. And I don't think you can just get by anymore with just applying for a job and maybe thinking you're gonna get it. Like you need to put the work in, you need to put the time and the effort in and really think about how you wanna get to where you wanna go. Um, so that's been a big change. And I think the change that I'm most excited for moving forward is starting to see the next generation start their own projects and take those projects to the next level. I think that's gonna be really exciting. 
And a lot of people have already started to do that. And I look really, I look forward to watching everyone succeed and kind of maintaining this community. And I think that no matter what, even if we continue to change, I mean, looking at what's going on in California right now with the fires, you can't help but in the back of your head go, oh God, all these California wineries are gonna move up to Oregon. And you know what, they very well might, but they're not gonna change who Oregon is because they wanna be a part of that. And I think remembering that is so important um, and being okay with the change and knowing that, okay, like the environment might change, but it can't change the kind of soul of what the founders of the Willamette Valley and the Oregon wine industry were a part of creating. I think that would be really hard to take away. So as you look ahead for the industry, what do you see happening in Oregon over the next five to 10 years? Yeah, I, I think I see a lot of opportunity for growth. I think that I see a lot of change happening in the future. Um, I think we will continue to see a lot of people moving in from out of state, even maybe from overseas starting projects here. Um, but I think it's gonna be good. I, I, I don't think I can think it can be bad because we have to think positive, we have to think forward. Um, I really hope and I do think that I we will start to see people farming with more intention. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that the change that's gonna happen is inevitable and we need to learn how to hold on to the community we have and welcome other people because even me, like I came up from California, I was an eager person and wanted to learn and am I coming in with millions of dollars? No, never will. Um, but. I think that it's going to provide opportunity and change for growth and like I said, I think it's really important that we as an industry come together and start thinking about the future and the future of our choices that we're making in the vineyards and how to take care of the land. There's reasons that vineyards last for many, many, many years in other places of the world and I think we need to start shifting our focus that direction. Right. Last question for you. We're going to get a little philosophical. You've, you've sort of answered this question already, but I'm curious to let you flesh it out a little bit. What is wine's role in society? To bring people together. Um, I mentioned that the table is very important to me. Um, it's been something that's been important to me my whole life, and now that wine is on the table, to me that's where it belongs. Um, personally, I very rarely drink a glass of wine just because. Um, we have wine every night with dinner and we always will mm -hmm. and because that's where it belongs and for me it's about extending that time and just adding another layer of connection um, to the table to the conversation and also not just about connecting people but for me and I'm fortunate enough to make wines in this way that we can connect people to what they're drinking and where it came from. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's, that's kind of an honor to be able to do that. And it's also incredibly important to me to bring people together and connect. And I love people. So anything that makes them come together and be happy is gonna make me happy. And very rarely do you see someone with a glass of wine in their hand and they're pissed off. It's just not, it's not how it should be. Like, mm -hmm. should be smiling and sitting there drinking food, drinking food, drinking wine and eating plenty of food. See, I might've had too much wine already. <laughs>
Yeah, whiskey is when you're pissed off. One oh, is one is for exactly. Salty. And you know what? After a long day of harvest, I got a little something brown on the rocks when I get home. <laughs> I'm not drinking a glass of wine. <laughs> That's all the questions I have for you, Kim. Okay. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here? Oh man, not right now, but maybe later. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time and for your stories, for your for your thoughts on the industry and, and yourself, and, and we're going to let you off the hook. Okay, awesome. Thank Thanks, you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.